We should be using the screen again today because we're covering a lot of territory as we go through our journey in the Bible. Um, We're on week four now of our five-week journey through the Bible, Um, trying to figure out what is it all about? What's the big story of the Bible all about? And, And so far, I hope you've gotten some answers to some of the really big questions of life, at least what the Bible says about these questions. First of all, we looked at the question of why is the world the way it is? You look look around the world, and even like this week, as I mentioned in my prayer, uh, you you look at the world and you, and you, a beautiful day, you know, 73 degrees, you know, blue sky, white fluffy clouds, you know, enjoying, you know, hamburgers with your family, that's what I was doing last night, just, you know, having, having fun, and you look at the world and think life is really, really good. Like, it's great to be alive in this world. That, that's a part of the human experience. You just think life is really good. There's wonderful things about the world. But at the same time, somehow, life is also really, really terrible. There's wars, there's earthquakes, there's heartaches, there's death, there's disappointment. Uh, even on a beautiful day of 72 degrees and light fluffy clouds, there's disaster and there's things waiting around the corner. It, I mean, life is wonderful, and life is horrible. Okay, how, how did it get this way? Why is the world that way? Well, we've looked at what the Bible says about that, and it gives a pretty helpful and comprehensive answer. Um, the Bible says the world is wonderful because it was created by a perfect God, full of beauty and meaning and love and, and splendor. But it's horrible because it was terribly damaged by sin. God gave Adam and Eve the opportunity in the Garden of Eden to obey him, to display their trust in him. And Adam and Eve said, we don't want to trust you. We want to be God. We want to take that place for ourselves. And because they did that, they betrayed God. And they lost the relationship with God. And that has had cosmic effects. That has brought brokenness in our relationships with one another. It's, it's brought brokenness in the world itself. It's brought brokenness in our relationship with God. So that everything wrong with the world flows out of this one act of sin that's recorded in the Bible in Genesis 3. So in the beginning of the Bible, we see the explanation why the world is the way it is. It's, it's a glorious ruin. It's wonderful and it's horrible because God created it good, but it's damaged through sin. The second big question that we've been trying to address through this, this, uh, this series is, so we said, well, why is the world the way it is? But then is there any hope that it will be better? Absolutely. There's absolutely hope that it will be better, and that's what we've started tracing through now as we've gotten out of Genesis 3, and last week we looked at the story of the whole Old Testament in 35 minutes. It was about 36, but I covered the Old Testament in 35, then I said a little bit about the New Testament, so that counted. We made it. Uh, But we covered the whole Old Testament, and in that story of the Old Testament, we see it's God's story of redeeming love, God working to fix the world, the brokenness in the world. He's, He's bringing redemption, and he does it through promises. We saw God making promises, even in Genesis 3, that he would crush Satan once for all. He made a promise to one man, Abraham, that through him he would bless the whole world. He made a promise to a nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants, saying that they would be the people through whom he revealed himself to the world. Uh, He made a promise to David that he would have a descendant who reigned as king forever. He made a promise to his people that there would be a new covenant where he no longer just wrote the law on tablets of stone and said, follow them, but he wrote them on your heart so that you could follow them. And all these promises culminate in Jesus. So this week we're going to focus on Jesus. And if you thought it was hard to do the whole Old Testament in one sermon, wow, what do you, what, how do you preach Jesus in one sermon? But 
What I want us to see this morning as we look at the life of Jesus is I want us to see that there's hope. Because of Jesus, there is hope. When Jesus comes, he ushers in a new period in human history. The period that we live in now. One that is, it's not, it's not completely better, but it's definitively better. Jesus has come to bring hope. He's come, he's changed everything. So we could talk forever about Jesus and his work, um, but we got potluck today, so we're not going to do that. I'm just going to talk about three things. I want to focus on three things as I survey the New Testament. Three big things that Jesus changes to bring us hope. So you can follow those on your note-taking outline if you want. I've got blanks for you again there. But what we're going to see today is that Jesus brings hope as he changes everything. And the first thing significantly that Jesus changes is that he changes our fate from death to life. Um, You notice something if you read the Gospels all the way through you know, a lot of times we just kind of pick and choose. Maybe in a devotional reading, you'll open up, you read a chapter or something. But if you actually read the Gospels all the way through, you'll notice something. They're actually really bad biographies by our standards today. Um, you know, we, we expect biographies to be, you know, very detailed, tell you all about a person's childhood, all about their, you know, their family dynamics and, you know, formative influences and all sorts of stuff. We want, you know, big, thick biographies that tell you all about someone's life. But Jesus is biographies. We've got four of them in the Gospels, and you know, only two of them say anything about his birth. Um, they, don't, they don't say a lot about his childhood. You get maybe one story about him as a young man. Uh, by and large, they focus on a three-year period of his life where he's doing ministry. And even of that, most of that focus is, is on the last week of his life. And even of that, most of that focus is on a, on a 24-hour period right before he's crucified and then his resurrection three days later. So when you look at the life of Jesus, there's lots of stuff there, right? I mean, he's, he teaches, he does miracles, but by their very nature, by their structure, they're all saying the most important thing about Jesus is the fact that he died on a cross and three days later, he rose from the dead. And the story of Jesus is bigger than death and resurrection. I mean, there's, there's other stuff there. His teaching is good. It's, it's really good teaching. You should study it. You should listen to it. You should obey it. Uh, the miracles he does are, are astounding and wonderful, and they, they're full of significance and meaning for us. But, but the most important thing, the thing that the gospel writers spend all of their attention and focus on is the fact that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. Now, knowing what we know about the Bible story, why would that be the case? Why would it be the most important thing that he die and rise from the dead? It's because... In Genesis, God said, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve ate from the tree, and the consequence was death. See, the big problem, the big problem in, in, in the Bible is, is, is death. This is the big consequence, right? I mean, good, good teaching's nice, miracles are good, but at the end of the day, we all die. I mean, at the end of life, we all die, and after that comes judgment. So the main thing, the big problem is, what are we going to do about death? How are we going to solve the problem of death? What we need is someone to come into the story and to bring life. 
And that's what Jesus brings. That's what he promises, and that's what he delivers. So the first verse on the screen today, I want you to look at John 10.10. This is the promise that Jesus brings when he says, here I am. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus comes and he promises, I'm going to bring life. You have death because of Adam and Eve. I'm going to bring you life. And then he delivers on that through his death and resurrection. Let's just look at some verses from the New Testament, the early Christians that, that they talk about what happened in Jesus' death. Let's look at 1 Peter 2.24. This is Peter saying, here's what happened when Jesus died. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. We could spend forever on this, but you, a, he's saying Jesus is our substitute. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So in some way, when Jesus is dying on the cross, he's dying the death that we should be dying. He's dying as a substitute. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we've got a debt. We've got a, a, a debt. It's a big debt. It's the debt of death. We've sinned. We deserve death. We're enemies of God. We're in huge debt. We cannot get out. There's no bankruptcy. <laughs> There's no get out of debt free. But, but what do we need? We need someone to pay that debt. And this is what Jesus did. He says that debt, that record of debt, record of your sins is placed on the cross. And there, when Jesus dies, it's canceled. We were dead. We were made alive through the death of Jesus. Let's look at one more. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is, he, he took, partook of flesh and blood, he became a man, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the fulfillment of the crushing of Satan. Genesis 3, 15. The son of the woman will defeat Satan. He, Jesus is defeating Satan. How's he doing it? He's doing it by dying. In his death, he defeats the power of death. He defeats the devil. He takes away the power of the devil because he's, he's dying in our place that we no longer have to fear death and so that Satan no longer has any authority over us to make us afraid of death. This is how Jesus comes to bring us life. It's through his death he brings us life. But not just his death because lots of people have died on a cross. You know that, right? I mean, he's not the only person to ever die on a cross. That was a popular form of execution. Thousands of people have been killed on crosses, so just Jesus dying on a cross is not that big of a deal if that's all that happened. But he brings life by dying on the cross and then three days later rising from the dead. I've got one verse for this one, 1 Corinthians 15. This is Paul reflecting on the significance of the resurrection for us. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. What he's saying here is that, that death itself Death that was introduced by Adam, in verse 22, as in Adam all die. 
So in Christ all shall be made alive. Death came through Adam, through his sin. Now Jesus, through his resurrection, provides life for us. And he does it as a first fruits. Because Christ is the first one to rise from the dead. As an example, as a, as a deposit, saying, you're going to rise from the dead too. What happened to Jesus is going to happen to you. This is the first great change that Jesus brings. I mean, it's, it's the basis for our hope. We were condemned to death. We were guilty because of our sin. Jesus took that sin on himself, died on the cross in our place, and rose from the dead so that we know that if we put our faith in him, we won't stay dead, but we will rise from the dead like Jesus himself. Jesus enters the story, and he brings hope by changing our fate from death to life. I'm just going to take a little break here and, and, and say a few. There might be a couple questions. You know, you got time to answer questions, ask questions after this? Let me give you a couple suggestions. Here's some questions you might ask. I'm not going to answer them right now. But you heard this and you think, okay, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Jesus rose from the dead. Here's a question some people have. Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive our sins? Here's another question. Uh, how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? If that's so important, how do we know that there's any proof that he rose from the dead? Is there proof? Oh, those are good questions, aren't they? If only there's a time when you can ask questions like that. All right, second change that Jesus brings. The first change, he changes our fate from death to life. He also changes our focus from ethnicity to faith. This is a big one that helps us understand the whole Bible, how it all fits together. He changes our focus from ethnicity to faith. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, you cannot help but notice that the whole thing pretty much is focused on one ethnic group, the Jews. Okay? And this carries over in the New Testament. Of course, Jesus is a Jew. The Twelve disciples are all Jews. Early Christians, all Jews. Uh, it doesn't really get much traction until you get you know, a little bit into Acts, and all of a sudden you get these people who aren't Jews saying, hey, we want to be Christians too. And they've got to hash this out. What does it mean? How do you become a Christian? What's the essential thing about being a Christian? And as you keep reading through the Bible, you see that clearly God affirms that this is not just for one ethnic group. This is a, this is a salvation that's available to the whole world. Now, th this is because we've got you know, 2,000 years of, of church history behind us uh, of just accepting that, uh, that of course, uh, Gentiles can be saved. You don't have to be a Jew. This, we, we've, we neglect or we don't understand the significance of this. But this is a huge change, right? Uh, one passage that really highlights this is in Ephesians 2. Let's see if we can look at this. It's in two sections. So this first part here, Ephesians 2.11, he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, and a Gentile is just, if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Okay, so it's probably us all. Uh, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Just stop there for a second. Do you, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, uh, you Gentile, you have no claim to the promises of God in the Old Testament. Everything I talked about last week, Okay, these, these promises that God made to Abraham and to his descendants, the God, promises God made to David and his descendants, the promises God made, the new covenant to Israel, saying, I'm going to write the law on your hearts. These are promises that God made to a specific people. 
that he made to Jews. And Paul's saying, hey, Gentiles, do you recognize that before Jesus came, you had no part in that? This is the way that God chose to deal with the world. He chose to engage with the world by making a covenant and relationship with a particular ethnic group. And if you weren't a part of that, you didn't have access to God. That's a very bad place to be. He's saying you were without hope and without God in the world because you were not a Jew. And that's how God dealt with people is through the Jewish people. What's the rest of the passage say? Let's go to the next slide. But now, change, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What he's saying is now that Jesus has come, you Gentiles, me included, who are without God, without hope in the world, unless you wanted to convert to Judaism and get circumcised and follow their laws. And now in Christ Jesus, he's abolished the law. He's abolished that dividing wall. And he said, through faith in Jesus, that's the way you get saved. That's the way you come to God. It's open now for the whole world. It's no longer divided into ethnic categories. It's all about faith in Jesus. You're one. There's one way to God. There's one body. There's one way to be reconciled to him. It's through Jesus Christ, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. So it means that you can be a, an Italian Christian, you can be a Greek Christian, you can be an African American Christian, you can be a Native American Christian, you can be a German Christian, and you don't have to become a Jew first to get saved. You don't have to give up your heritage and your customs and adopt all these Old Testament regulations, all this, this Old Testament stuff that, that was for the Jewish people. You don't have to, you have to do that because Christ has abolished that. He's come. All you need is faith in him and you're united in one body with all believers for all time. If you want another question to ask later today, you could say, well, what, what about, is there a future for Israel? What about them? What about the Jews? Is there, does God have a plan for them? That be another question. Now, the fact that this has happened means there's a change in mission. You remember last week when we talked about the Old Testament, the reason why God chose Israel is he said, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. I'm going to set you up in this nation, in this land. And I want you to follow me, and I want the nations to see what a great God they must have, that they follow such wonderful laws, and they're so good and loving and pure, and what a great country. That was his plan. But they, didn't, they didn't do it, right? It didn't work. But now, God's no longer focused on one particular nation. He's focused on everybody who has faith in Christ. So there's a shift. It's not a, a come and see mentality, like here's the one nation where people follow God, everybody around the world come and see how we follow God. It's a go and tell. It's God saying, I've, I've written my law in your hearts, you are my people, now go out into all the world and tell people about how great I am. So we get Matthew 28. Great commission. Jesus said to them, uh, go, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So, so now instead of, of one, one place in the Middle East where God's people are and everybody has to come and see what's it like to follow God, God's got billions of people all over the place 
who are following God and going and telling others. It's, it's like an embassy. You know how embassies work in, in our world? If you've got the American embassy in Spain, you know, it, it's in Spain, but the actual embassy is considered American soil. It's an outpost of the kingdom. Each of us, what, what's happened now is, is God has, has made each of us an outpost of his kingdom. As we gather together in this local church, we're an embassy of Christ. His kingdom, this is his territory in the world. As we go into our workplaces or our neighborhoods or our families, you are, you know, it, where you stand is heavenly soil. Okay? This is God's kingdom. God is in you. He's your king. So you're an embassy for Christ wherever you are. You are going. You are taking the kingdom. Instead of saying, instead of saying come and see what it's like to follow God, you're going and telling and saying, this is what it's like to follow God. This is what it's like to be a child of God. This is what it's like to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. This is a significant change that Jesus brings. He changes our fate from death to life and he changes our focus from one ethnic group where saying come and see what it's like to follow God to, to, to everyone who's got faith in Jesus going and telling the gospel of Jesus. The third change is that he changes our experience from God with us to God in us. He changes our experience from God with us to God in us. So in Genesis, first couple chapters, you remember it was pretty good. The relationship that Adam and Eve had with God was incredible. It was intimate. It was face to face. It says they, they were walking in the garden with God. I don't know exactly what that's like, but it sounds pretty amazing, walking with God in the garden. But of course, after sin happens in Genesis 3, you don't see that anymore. God walks the garden and Adam's hiding. I don't, I don't want to be with God. I can't be with God. I'm scared. I'm ashamed. And after that, you, you just don't see that level of intimacy with God in the, in the Old Testament. Um, now, now, through God's loving provision, his covenants, his promises. He makes a way to have a relationship with him. It's not the same, but it's a relationship. It's a mediated relationship. There's priests. Uh, there's regulations. You need sacrifices. Uh, God is in a, you know, in a, in a tabernacle in a cloud of fire in the temple or on the mountain, and he's terrifying, and his, you know, there's peals of thunder, and, and there's the, you know, fire, and, and it's, it's like Okay, there's a relationship with God, but I don't want to get too close. In fact, on Mount Sinai, God says, don't even let animals touch the mountain or they need to be put to death. Okay, so there's a relationship. God's there. He's with them in a, in a way, but it's not like walking in the garden. And then Jesus comes. Matthew 1, 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. So in a, in a new way, when Jesus comes, he brings God with us. It, and it is new. It's still, it's still a God with us relationship. Like God, God's here in Jesus. He's, he's there. He's with us. It's a very new way. It's not God with us in this transcendent, mediated way. Like I have a sacrifice to come to him or I need a priest to come to him. He's, he's with us. He's in human flesh. He's there as a person with us, you know, sharing our experience he now knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be weak, to be tempted. He knows what it's like to, to feel the sun on your face. 
and just enjoy a beautiful day. He knows what it's like to hug his mother. Okay, he, he knows this. He's, he's, he's done this. He's God with us in our experience. That's a huge change, right? No longer God, no longer God with us in a transcendent way, like, yeah, he's there, but I can't get to him. But God with us in an imminent way. God here in Jerusalem, you know, with splinters in his hand for making a table. But it goes even farther, right? Because after Jesus dies on the cross and then rises from the dead, he hangs out for a little while, then he ascends back to heaven. And when he goes to heaven, he pours out the Holy Spirit. And this is, here's, here's a section from Peter in Acts chapter 2, explaining to the first people what just happened when God pours out the Holy Spirit, when Jesus pours out the Spirit. Peter says, this Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So verse 33 is the key one there. So Jesus, having been exalted, at God's right hand now pours out the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is God. There's our little Trinitarian theology refresh. There's three persons in God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. Each person is distinct from each other person. And there's one God. I suppose you could ask about that too, but I'll just give you that same answer again. But God pours out the Holy Spirit. Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. God himself poured out on people. All right, and the next slide wraps it up here. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a huge change that Jesus brings. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, it's no longer God with us. Certainly not in a transcendent way, like you need sacrifices to interact with God. Not even in a Jesus walking with us, we can see him, touch him in the flesh sort of way. But God in us, Holy Spirit dwelling inside of your heart, God moving into the neighborhood, taking up residence inside of you sort of way. And when the Holy Spirit comes in you, this is the fulfillment of the new covenant. You see that? God said, I'm going to change. I'm going to change the way things are. It's no longer somebody saying to somebody else, you should know the Lord. Somebody telling you, wouldn't it be wonderful if you knew the Lord? But it's you know the Lord because he's in you. You don't need the law written on commandments, on tablets out there anymore because the law is written on your heart because God is in your heart. Changing you from the inside out. Empowering you to keep his commands. Making you holy. Giving you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. This is a level of intimacy that's unheard of, even for the Garden of Eden. It's the key to the Christian life. It's impossible to follow God on your own, but you, you need God on the inside, and that's what he provides. So this is what Jesus made possible for us. After his death and resurrection, he ascended to heaven and poured out the Spirit that God himself would live inside of us. You can be thankful. I had a whole fourth point that I'm just not even going to do. 
But if you want to ask a question, what was your fourth point? I could do that. Uh, but there's some huge changes, right? I mean, this is Jesus. You could talk about Jesus forever, but here's some big ones. Huge changes that come when Jesus arrives. He changes our fate from death to life if we put our faith in him. He changes the focus from one ethnic group to faith in him so that, that we Gentiles can sit here and, and not worry about converting to Judaism or following the Old Testament food laws or any of those sorts of things. We just put our faith in Christ and we have a relationship with God. And he, he changes our relationship with God from one of God with us to God in us. Now, if these things are true, and they are, then it means we have tremendous hope. Right? The, the world as we look at it today, as we experience it, is wonderful, but it's also horrible. And we ask, is there any hope? Yes, there's hope. There's hope because God is at work. He was at work in the Old Testament from the very beginning. When, when sin happened, God began to work, and he has been working. He worked climactically in, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. As we look at the world today, it's not the way we think it should be. And we'll talk about that next week, where God's going with it all. It's not the way we think it should be, but it's not the way it was. Because Jesus has come. And when he came, he changed everything. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, what a, what a small attempt to describe your work this morning. Um, but I think it's, it's true. Certainly not an exhaustive explanation of all that you've done. Who could, who could do that? But, but a true explanation. I, I pray that the truth of it would fall on our hearts this morning. I pray that we would worship you afresh, that we'd have new uh, reservoirs of hope because we know that you have transferred us from death to life. We know that we have faith in you and that's all that matters and we know that, that you have given us your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Would you make that a reality, an experienced reality for us, Lord? Give us hope because of the work that you've done. Father, I pray for the rest of our time this morning, if there are folks who have questions or things that, you know, areas that you want to take this discussion this morning that I didn't plan, I want to open myself up for that and ask you to lead us and to guide us that we might have a firm and solid foundation in our understanding and belief in who you are. In Jesus' name.